0: This is a new angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with Kurt Olds, internationally renowned singer in opera and musical theater, director, and entrepreneur.
1: Let's tell stories about today. Let's not depend on those of the past or those that are problematic, but let's tell new stories.
0: Kurt has performed on Broadway at the Lincoln Center and at Carnegie Hall. He is a Butte native and a graduate of the University of Montana with a degree in vocal performance. Kurt, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hey, thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do?
1: Yeah, uh, I grew up in Butte, Montana, and I'm still a very proud Butte native. My mom was, uh, she was an artisan of her own, many different facets. She went to the University of Montana back when it was MSU. Okay. Lived in uh, North Corbin, just right behind where we are right here. And uh, she owned a bridal shop. And my dad was an electrical engineer with the, with the mining operations in Butte, and then later Westinghouse and some other places as he traveled after the mines closed down in Butte in the early 80s. And how did you kind of find the performing arts? What, what was your on-ramp? I always loved performing, but it was really that visit from the Missoula Children's Theater of all places that um, entered into my life. They, they had started the prototypes for their tour that now okay. dominates the world. And uh, they came to Buttes and a few other cities as they branched out of theater in, in Missoula specifically. And I was one of those kids early on. And that gave me a format which got me into the local community theater. And uh, I just never left. You know, that, that's just been my life. I, I luckily had a focus from a very early age. And uh, it took over my life, you know.
0: And is that kind of th- some of the motivation to come to the University of Montana and study Yeah, vocal?
1: I, I got really lucky with uh, the voice training. When my voice started to change, uh, a woman from New York City, her husband came to redevelop uh, one of the ho- state hospitals here. Oh. And she had gotten married late in life. And uh, he said, why don't you come out here? And then I'm going after I finish this work, I'm going to retire in Montana. Mm-hmm. And she had been a singer at the Metropolitan Opera. And... Uh, she came out here with him and she heard me sing at something. And she was not interested in teaching voice, but she took a few students and uh, she took me under her wing and really got me into the national. You know, she said, let's you, you have something here. And it, as I tell young students now, anytime I teach around the country, it was the perfect place for me. I had the mentors I needed and I had a very small swimming pool. And, you know, quite frankly, I had the university and I still had the Mozilla Children's Theater, which mm-hmm. they had known me since I was seven. Um, it was just a wonderful time. And by the time I got to grad school in Boston, I was just raring to go because I, you know, the University of Montana was such a, a fertile place for me to to sop up anything I wanted. And uh, the faculty is today and was then just really, really great. I'm sure there was doubt along the way at various points, but it sounds like a pretty direct path to being a professional Performer. Yeah. One would think, I mean, it's in retrospect, it sounds so easy, but, um, right. Pat straightens know, behind us. Yeah. Right. That's, that's very good. But eventually, you know, I, I moved to Boston to go to New England conservatory and, uh, I was a little reluctant to move to New York without any job. Yeah. So I kind of waited. I did some uh, of the bigger shows over in Europe. I went over to Germany for a while and, uh, and then eventually there was work for me in New York.
0: Yeah. Describe that kind of like how it actually starts happening, like how you get roles and, you know, jobs basically, and what the structure of those are like as, as a young performer trying to find your way early.
1: Yeah, it's it's the crossroad at that point for an artist is really, really difficult. Um, it's almost a catch 44, if I can use that term. Okay. Because, you know, you have to have certain credits to step ahead, but you yeah. can't step ahead until you haven't, you know, like, but you have to not only be doing as much as you can as a performer and training, but you also have to be doing sort of the schmoozy political thing in that you have to get to know that those subworlds of the casting agent which okay. is sort of, as I call it, the gatekeeper. Um, they're The, the person one,
0: who makes the decisions. Yeah,
1: yeah. The, the producer of those bigger shows or any show bigger than a regional theater will hire a casting agent. There's just too many people. So they'll say, I want this and this and this, and the casting director makes up lists, contacts, they get to know the talent, and then they say, okay, great, you want to look at seven people for this role. Mm-hmm. They go out and vet the seven, so when they come in for that audition, they're ready to go. The producers already have... Seven Possibilities. Now, okay. the producers could have some of their own, and that's a whole different world, you know, to get in and to know the producers. But that environment is sort of where you begin. I always tell people, try to get as much footing as you possibly can. Keep lists of those places that you are working. You, uh, keep your business mind about you. You know, don't don't just go in because it, it, it is a hobby. And a lot of people view that, you know, a lot of people have hard, long careers, but they still do theater on the side. They still play in a community band or an orchestra. Mm-hmm. It's easy to incorporate the performing arts, but if it is your business... You have to work at it. I always say, you know, how many lawyers would be successful if they took four days off and watched TV? Right. You know, right. It, it would. It's, it's not even possible. And you can't do that either. Business is business. And so what are you doing on a daily basis to track out? How are you getting to know your people? How are you taking care of yourself? How are you grooming your business to be profitable?
0: And what was the point at which it sort of became real? Like, was there a breakthrough role or an opportunity or something like that where you were, it sort of became clear that, okay, this life as a as a professional artist is, is going to happen for me?
1: My breakouts were really small. I didn't need that big one. Okay. You know, I needed to just know that I had solid ground in front of me. And so I did get some of those, you know, landing your first Broadway contract or, you know, switching. When I, I got a big production of the Magic Flute, Mozart's Magic Flute, that sort of I knew at that point there was no going back. You know, it was a gradual process to that. But once I landed that, with the help of two or three people, and, and, and honestly, a director, uh, I was not the one cast, and the director said, I want him, or I don't want to do the project. I really? Mean, I had a couple friends like that that believed in my talent. Yeah. And you know, the company was left to say, okay, fine. Give the kid a chance. It's not that big of a deal. We can't lose the director. Mm-hmm. So um, I've spent more time being thankful than being in awe of what I got because it was such a major leap. Sure. You know, it's been... And luckily, I've been able to depend on those people for the long run. And as my, as my career turned towards production and hiring and staffing symphony shows and all that, I turned to those people because they're great sources of who do you think can I put on this stage when I'm not even going to be there and they're going to be singing with, say, Milwaukee Symphony. All those friends along the way are just a great library of, of great minds that can that can help us all stay working, you know?
0: Yeah, and you give so much back to students and and younger performers who are trying to work their way through the system. Talk about that, your, your, your work in production and, and Black Tie Broadway and some of your work with agencies.
1: You know, with the, with the next generation, I always want to just, I feel like I have a lamp and I can kind of see a little bit ahead of them. And I'm like, hey, look, you know? Yeah. That's always been my attitude. Lacking in opportunities at a certain point in my life, I just... Realized I had done some symphony pops, and I saw how sloppy that world was. A lot of orchestras don't want to deal with symphony pops. Okay, they want to just do the main work. You know, they can't... yeah.
0: Kind of describe that for the listener. Yeah, not yeah. Familiar
1: with symphony pops. Symphony orchestras, conductors, any of the executive directors. they're I mean, their love most of them uh, are are for the big symphonic works. Sure. You know, and they're very protective of those works. You know, they want to make sure that that tradition continues. And unfortunately, symphony pops plays the bills. And if you have, you know the best producers out there, the best symphonies do a nice mix. The symphony pops that I had participated in was really sloppy. You know, I'd go to this orchestra, this decent orchestra, and it was just thrown together. Okay, just get it up. Just, they're great. They're from Broadway. Sing your tunes. And then let's move on because we got to plan the Mahler 8th. You know, okay. the okay. Mahler 8th is coming next spring. And, you know, but they took the money from, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein and sure. Stephen Sondheim, Andrew Lloyd Weber And I just found, look, if you can make this really easy for it, it's not that they hate it it's just a lot of work and mm-hmm. it's a lot of licensing because every piece when you pull it from a show has to be licensed separate sure complicated so, yeah so i thought if i can just clean that process up and have two or three offerings to just go hey here we go and they responded and based on my reputation as a performer i started to slip in some symphony shows there okay and so then you have some dexterity you got to learn with who else is producing out there and what what pools to stay out of and, and learn your space. And once again, I think never really caring about that great big one. I was happy to take and help those smaller symphony orchestras, you know, Um, mainly because I love my Montana symphony orchestras and we have so many here. It's Mm -hmm. crazy. Great falls, Billings, Butte being the oldest in my hometown, which I'm always very protective. Butte must always have a symphony orchestra (laughs) and I'll do anything. Missoula, that just was, you know, that I did so many works there and and their new leadership. I'm, I'm working with them currently. Kalispell has Glacier Symphony. I mean, it's an amazing place, but helping those kind of orchestras have access to, you know, talent and, you know, they don't have to go through all the agencies because I can take care of that for them. On that other front, I was an agent for a number of years right. uh, handling classical uh, artists and uh, helping them sort of step into the crossover world, as we call it, you know, mm-hmm. stepping into the occasional musical, helping them get some commercial work or some voiceover work. You know, if you if you sit down um, and and do... Even a gig or two of voiceover work it'll it 'll pay you more than three or four gigs for sure know? now that you have to be ready to go against those professionals that do that you mm-hmm. know it 's all good work, and uh, I really enjoyed those years and love those colleagues
0: Give us just a little uh, and i 'm speaking from a, a position of total ignorance here, but give us just a little view of like how you develop a professional voice like what what is the I think people are probably familiar with hey this is how somebody goes and trains for a marathon like they'll go yeah, yeah. run distances and speeds and so forth but like what is involved in training a voice.
1: Yeah, and it's it's the weight lifter is a manifestation that we can see. Sure. When we're dealing with that we spend just as much time in in developing a voice in a very very small very delicate muscle group okay. that that can be you know destroyed momentarily. I mean, the same thing, form how you go about the, quote, weightlifting of it. You know, you, the form is important. Um, and setting up excellent vocal technique, learning your apparatus, how to put the breath through the cords, how to keep the muscle, the, the diaphragm going, all of that, the rib cage up, all of those little things add to the length of your career, how much money you're going to be making on it, keeping your voice in perfect shape. But yeah, you you do have to train. And you you, you look at people that have a propensity or a desire even to want to sing at sort of that next level. Mm-hmm. And then the good teachers will assess how much does this person really need my help? And this is where it can go wrong sometimes because some, there are so many people, well, there's a big handful that don't need voice teachers at all. Just their techniques there. It's, it's God given. It's born with whatever, you, whatever your belief system is, it exists. So how much do I have to go in that to bother it? You know what I mean? And sometimes that can be messed up. The sense of pitch is a big thing. How you identify pitch. Can you keep a pitch? Uh, Can it be corrected or is it a problem? You know, all of these will make that decision whether or not it's going to, you know, what I love is when I hear somebody that's never sung a note in their life, but I can hear natural resonance in their mm, voice. Their yeah. voice is placed exactly where it goes. And I, I, I just, I obsess, like, I just want to, I want to get in a studio with you and just like put some air through that because you can hear the natural sure, instrument. Coach them up and yeah, get them involved. Yeah. yeah. And then if you're looking at going classical, you're going to be competing against people, not only vocally, but also in the dexterity of a language in scholasticism. So, you know, when I jumped into the business, it was uh, Italian, French, English. And now you are expected, in the way the world's changing, I mean, the Spanish influence on the music world, the Russian influence was always there. We always had Tchaikovsky. We always had those composers. But now it's, and it's such a great language to sing in any of those sort of Russian Eastern languages because they go from the vowels into z all that sound and it just flows so nicely you know Um, the hardest is relearning how to sing in English because we after all that yeah well I mean as an English speaker because we do not sing the same way that we speak sure and so you people underestimate how long it's going to be before you're you're singing in English you know, you can learn French and Italian. Italian's the easiest because the, there's so few vowels or vowel combinations. Okay. It's very pure language. So you can get going on that. You can get a good teenage singer that, you know, especially boys where their voice just changed, you know, with my experiences, um, girls a little earlier. But you can get them going on Italian really quick. English, it's crazy how awful it sounds. And especially if they've done some musicals, because we go into a vernacular of different sounds in musicals, a lot of really, you know, rounding in the words, and then to go back and do a singing classical English. It's, and it's not a dialect. It's how you put the voice through and where on the teeth and tongue you're placing those vowels and consonants. So it becomes a dance. We'll be back to my conversation with Kurt Olds
0: after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Anya Jabor, Regents Professor
1: of History at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle.
0: Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with internationally renowned opera singer and musical theater performer, Kurt Olds. So you've you've had the great fortune of performing such a wide variety of roles context and contexts and over, you know, it's becoming a long career, social norms and memes and the political moments of the day have changed over the arc of that and you've performed in some shows that, you know, that the how they are viewed by the public and representation amongst the cast and so forth have changed. Talk about that how changing standards have affected the field and then your approach to the work as well.
1: Yeah. I think the biggest example for my career, I, early on in my life, uh, did a lot and still do a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan, okay. the operettas of Gilbert and Sullivan. And their, their most successful work is uh, the Mikado, right? It takes mm-hmm. place in Japan. And it came out of the time when Japan was closed like North Korea is today. We knew nothing. It was hard to get information. And then that day came when Japan opened the floodgates. Yeah. Culturally and everything. And it dominated the world. Everybody wanted to wear a kimono and a teapot. And, and it got garish. It was so, you know, it went into fabrics. It went into movement. It sure. went into pop culture. I mean, and from that, Gilbert and Sullivan wrote this valentine that is the Mikado. Mm-hmm. Viewed in today's world. Now, I went on to do 26 productions of the Mikado. Wow. And Coco in the Mikado, that character, is a best friend to me. I okay. mean, it, it is like death. That and I when, cannot... when
0: is this happening? like well, well,
1: the last time I did Mikado, um, and it was a very special production that downplayed a lot of that was two thousand and seventeen Okay. It, oh, it's uh, a relatively recent Kentucky yeah. opera yeah, it's intensified, and um, I don't disagree with the with the reason it's being and you know being looked at this way. I also do not think it's inherently racist, necessarily, the Mikado if you view it through the points I just said, sure, but. I understand the point being made and you don't have three hour tutorial to start that. When the curtain goes up, all you see is a representation of Caucasians as Asians, and that is not okay. So will we get the Mikado back at some point? I don't know. I hope, you know, or some version of it. There's been many attempts to change it, or, you know, it's really not dependent, since it's so fluffy, it's not dependent on Japan. But then are you doing it injustice if you take away the Japanese, you know, it's, it's a very interesting conversation to have. And it's, it's an important one to have. You mm-hmm. know, it's very important to handle that correctly. Um and also how to handle those pieces that might be viewed particularly Caucasian, say the new revival on Broadway of of Camelot, you know, just given the time period. It it doesn't dictate to many but we need to adjust that. We we can adjust that. It doesn't make any sense not to. So you're seeing this wonderfully diverse cast in New York right now in, in the traditionally Caucasian white production of Camelot. And it looks spectacular, yeah. you know? But then again where does that line go are we pushing it or are we just being inclusive or are we uh being racist like where is that line it's it's very delicate and i think right now the best thing we can do is just assess each thing as we go along and uh take feedback and like like i tell everybody keep a sense of humor right right give us the benefit of the doubt and let's learn together there's a lot of different people on a lot of different places on the spectrum the last being the paying audience you know what I mean? That's the last person we consider. Where they really should be the first. You know, because by the time all the decisions are made and all the choices and casting and all that on, on the creative and artist side, then we play it for the audience, and you have a totally different court of opinion. Sure, and that can go totally south. So you know, you have to you have to make decisions, and you have to have leaders, but you also have to take a consensus. Yeah, that 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 role of the audience is interesting
0: because. Yeah. If you rely solely on the audience as your sort of evaluator, you, you know you might cater to a population that's less progressive than the performers, or less progressive than the production company, or the content that you're you're putting on the stage. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the balance there? Because that is a role of art is to challenge people's worldview and mm-hmm. to make them think about the world differently. And it
1: is, but it's also not a democracy. You know what I mean? The Mm. arts. You know what I mean? You have to view it that way. You know, Van Gogh got to put on paint, you know, on, on a canvas what he wanted. Yeah. And you judge accordingly. So it does have to come and somebody has to be responsible. You know, you can't Right. The, the business. I mean, the actual art of making theater, it's it's more like the military than anything else. You know what I right. mean? We have right. to have a leader. We have to have a director or a producer. And so for that reason, it can't be a total democracy, you know, and, and audiences love to. Um, and this, I think, is the other uh, thing that used to balance that a little bit was the art of criticism. Hmm. Now everybody's a critic, right, yeah, so everybody yeah. can sit in their little bedroom and write a review they've had no schooling on how to do that, no journalism degree, no no uh, you know study of criticism mm-hmm. and we've lost that, even the New York Times you know doesn't really have that department that they used to, so that used to provide quite a service because they monitored and they sort of educated that that audience coming or going to that show on points historically in the profession on the points on how that was created and was the production good or bad sure we don't have that anymore we just have opinion we just have like oh i didn't like it not why or how or you know so it becomes more like i know what i like and i like what i know you know that that argument and it's it's I think the critic used to balance that more. And I think the value of that and when, you know, publications are suffering because people aren't picking up a printed newspaper anymore. So Mm -hmm. and they were reluctant to jump on. So things got cut back and and criticism was one of the first things in all forms. You know, you just don't see the critic, the, the educated professional critic, you know, being out there anymore. And I think that's a big part to this, to keeping us all on. Whoa, this is how it's being viewed. This is why it's being presented, you know.
0: Yeah, there is some balance there between sort of a, a flattening of opportunity in yeah. a way. It's less yeah. hierarchical, but with that, it sounds like there are some. There's potential for just a, a, a weakening of understanding, a weakening of standards, and just sort of a, a, a yeah, this view from I like it or I don't like it, and I don't really understand why.
1: Right. But one of the most exciting things that I'm seeing in the business now is I think we've turned a corner a little bit in uh, the argument of casting and criticism and all that in that my personal thought is the answer is telling new works. You know what I mean? Let's tell stories about today. Let's not yeah. depend on those of the past or those that are problematic. Sure. I mean, we, we will pull those out, those Valentines, you know, those shows that really do deserve a spot. But let's tell new stories. Yeah. Let's tell stories we've never told before that don't have all the racial uh, hullabaloo to it. You know what I mean? Let's, let's get going on those. Uh, the art form has o- opera, musical theater, any of it has always been the best time. We call the golden age. We were writing shows in the 40s and 50s about right then. Yes you know what I mean where's our shows today they're out there but they're not getting the play that Mm -hmm. normally they would people also use it as escapism you know so some show like Moulin Rouge on Broadway right now that big pot you just want kind of want to go or, or my you know My favorite, because I've been involved in it, Phantom of the Opera. Why does it survive so long? Because it's a classic tale, right? And we have adjusted that show over the years, you know? How much does the Phantom throw Christine down on the floor? Well, he doesn't throw her down like he used to. You know what I mean? She has more of a balance to the direction and, and angle of the show. And it's really interesting to see how that piece has changed, you know? and
0: that can lead audiences back to the sort of role of art in challenging an audience like the on ramp can be this familiarity. Yeah, we know yeah. Phantom of the Opera. It's familiar. I love it, but if I see it produced in a different way with a cast that looks differently or the roles mm-hmm. played out differently, that can that can kind of push the envelope of thought of existence in a way that, that you know that the audience is maybe already there in a way that right. they wouldn't be if it, if everything was totally new and yep. disorienting. So one of the reasons you're back in Montana right now is for this great honor happening across the street at the College of the Arts Media. You are the honoree for this year's Odyssey of the Stars. Talk about this honor and what it means to you.
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I've been involved with the Odyssey off and on since the beginning. But when they called, I thought they were just calling to like ask me to be a performer for somebody else. And they you know Dean bevsky said no, it's it's actually you <laughs> nice so uh, i'm I'm nervous about that, and I'm incredibly honored um, and I, I'm incredibly happy that the Odyssey as an event still happens it, it's a great. Spotlight on the arts. It's a great fundraiser, and it's a great way to incorporate alum that have gone on uh, to varying degrees of success in different fields uh-huh. to come back and really interact with the with the students there. Um, if not, just to be an ambassador of, it's worth it. Keep going. Oh, sure, you know? sure. Yeah,
0: talk about that. The role with the students. How much time do you get with them, and, and what are some of the key messages you try to impart?
1: Yeah. Well, and and especially the University of Montana students. I always try my best to get access to them. And to help them if I can answer yeah. questions, so we'll spend time together um there's a group of students, uh, I believe it's called the Zootown Cabaret, mm-hmm. that will be performing with me, unlike some of the other honorees, since I still have an active career, um, they asked me you know to do some numbers Get right and, in there and to up the show i mean it's it and it's easy to make it very enjoyable. I think the harder ones to do are when when you're Um, honoring an artist that isn't so razzmatazz, you know, because those are very important honors, too. This year, we can be a little more razzmatazz because that's pretty, you know, that's pretty much what I do. Yeah, I look forward to it. So why not do it, you know, and and have some good numbers? And and I get to perform with the students. I get to work with them and uh, just spend, you know, probably, you know, 8 to 10 hours this week working with them. So I always say, hey, look, if you have a question, I, I remain dedicated. Like, shoot me that question. I'll, I'll see if I have an answer. Mm-hmm. This is part of networking. And if you can practice on me, then you know how to contact other people, sure. you know, because you're going to depend on those people. And it's great. And I mean, I will, you know, I probably get in, in my workshops, I teach at New England Conservatory too occasionally. Mm-hmm. And then the Oddball Master Class if I'm in a town working. And, you know, I, I have a wonderful network of young artists, some of which I've gone on to hire, you know, like, you know, those connections, we really we really depend on long-term, you know, cause you never know where, where that need might r- arise. So last question, Kurt,
0: is as you kind of look at your arc of a career and, and what's ahead of you, how are you, how do you make choices about opportunities you say yes to and, and things you sort of stay away from?
1: Yeah, that's always hard for me. I just try to say yes and shove it all in. But um, Recently, uh, two big things happened for me. I became the director of artistic planning for Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater down in Logan. So that's close. Thank you. That is a a new part of my career is uh, being on the artistic teams of that. We also have, uh, for all Montanans out there, uh, I've been working very closely with a few people, Linda Curtis and Bozeman mainly, on a new company called Montana Musicals that will um, help bring some more programming to enhance what not to take the place of anything that's going on in the state because I'm supportive of all of that but to see how we can work together with the organizations I support and work with Mm -hmm. to bring quality musical theater and operatic performing around the state Um, we're going to we're going to start next season with uh, two titles we're getting ready to announce and uh, being Butte and being that it's in the center of the state we'll do a lot of the rehearsing and stuff in that location it'll involve people from all over the state coming together to form the ensemble and the orchestra, and then we'll bring in talent and uh, scenery and all of that, and uh, we'll, we'll start in Bozeman because we have some infrastructure there, and, mm-hmm. and then uh, I hope to, uh, over the course of the next week, talk to a couple of people I have meetings with to see if we can get that to Missoula, too. So that'd be a nice little trifecta right here.
0: Very good. Well, Kurt, uh, it's so great to spend some time with you, learn about your world, and particularly during this week with the great honor with the Odyssey of the Stars production. Um, Thanks for spending some time with us during this week. Hey, thank you.
1: Yeah, and very nice to meet you too. Thanks for everything.
0: Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.